You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Now here's what I want to do. Um, I don't want to go through and go, what does this have to say about singleness? I want to try and take a step back and be a bit more meta about it. Think about the framework of how Paul is addressing it. Uh, Things that grate against how we might think about things. I I did read through this back when I was in my early 20s and thought, this might be one of the most countercultural chapters of the scriptures. Because at a worldview level, it pushes against kind of everything that we naturally, instinctively believe. And I I think one thing about what Daniel was sharing was, we, we might not be so brazen, well, some of us might not be so brazen as to just quote what was set up there, but actually I think it comes through in how we talk with one another. The, the side comments, the ways in which we help each other, which often is really unhelpful, um, or the obsession that we have about talking about particular things, that we don't talk about anything else other than this particular topic. So I want to present to you four countercultural comparisons that I noticed that Paul making through 1 Corinthians 7. You'll notice there's five on your handouts. I'm lopping off the first one. Um, I'm going to jump down. Now, Danny alluded to this before um, about self-control versus self-expression. Now, there's not a lot in 1 Corinthians 7 that directly speaks to this, but I want to take you to uh, a few parts that do and then broaden it out from uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So uh, go to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, and I want you to look um, at verse 5. Now, this is said in the context of uh, responsibilities of uh, husbands and wives to one another, particularly uh, in relation to uh, sexual intimacy and uh, their mutual ownership of one another's bodies in the best of ways. You've got to understand in that cultural context... What would have happened is, uh, read with me, don't read with me, follow with me. Um, You'd see, um, verse 4, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And at that moment in a patriarchal society, a lot of people would be going, yes, of course. And then you read the next sentence, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. You go, what? Uh, And it's just this wonderfully, at least in that cultural context, countercultural reality, but then go down. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come again together, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, there's a lot that we can say about that verse, but he is, he's, he's tabling self-control there as, as an important thing to have for a period of time. If you look at, um, go down to verse 9, um, Oh, verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should uh, marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, if you want to find out exactly what that means, Danny's written a helpful blog post on that the other day. But I just want to make a general comment. You do see Paul not just here, but also throughout the New Testament, extol self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Um... It is, uh, later on, a virtue in gospel ministry. Now, that, when you think about it, now, it is true that self-control, people say, oh, you know, it's so important to have self-control in the Christian single life. And that's true. But it is actually important to have in the Christian life, uh, whether you're married or single, though the expression of your self-control may look different depending on the situation. And it's not even in relation to marriage or singleness. It's actually in relation to whatever life station you might be in. 
It is remarkable that Paul talks about self-control because our current cultural age extols self-expression above anything else. Uh, for the nerds among you who like podcasts, you'll have heard of the name uh, Charles Taylor before. He talks about expressive individualism. Uh, and let, let me step you through it, right? But when you pair it with the influence of Sigmund Freud, you get what I would call sexual expressive individualism. And I think it's the cult of our age. So, you may have heard that Descartes quote, I think, therefore, I am. So, my identity is I'm a rational individual. Um, then you get things like the Industrial Revolution that come along. I work, therefore, I am. I am what I do, right? So, I, my identity is found in my job. Uh, if I can't work, I can't do anything, I have a, you know, not so great job, suddenly I feel less of a person. Something that I resonate with, I belong, therefore, I am. So, you're the tribal individual. If I, if I, outside of a family, who am I? Outside of any other social constructs, who am I? But actually, the one that happens so much is I feel, therefore, I am. My, my feelings reign supreme. They define who I am. And so if I say I feel a certain way, well, that relates to my sexuality, whether that relates to depression or anxiety, that relates to a whole range of things, that is necessarily reality. But when you pair together... Um, not just the sexual revolution, but things that long came before that, it sounds crude to say, but I have sex, therefore I am. Or I am, or more respectable Christian version is, I'm married, therefore I am. The romantic individual. I am, um, I'm hesitant to say this, uh, I've, been, I've been worried from time to time that I talk to, this is not here, um, but, but I'm worried from time to time, and this happens wherever you go. Um, you get friends who get married, and what's the first question that people ask each other a few days later after they see each other after the honeymoon? It, the, it, things inevitably resol- revolve around the, oh, you finally got there, sexual fulfillment, that's the, that's, the, that's the part that you got to. And there are people who make marriage and sex synonymous that marriage exists for the sake of sex. So, so people don't even ask each other, how's your marriage? They go, how's your sex life? And it's just, it, firstly, it's, it's an inappropriate fusing of two things so closely. But it actually, do you realise, it demeans your marriage. It's actually quite offensive to your spouse, to be honest. But you see, if we say, I'm married, therefore I am, or I have sex, therefore I am, and we make that a matter of personhood, we actually, as Danny was saying, we, we, de- we dehumanise one another. Um, what we don't see is that the Bible speaks about self-control as a virtue. Now, you think self-control sounds terrible, but what we don't realise is that with self-control, on the one hand, comes true self-expression on the other. So you read Colossians 3. Put on your new self. So we talk about living out your true self. Who's your true self? That's the question, right? To thine own self be true. Well, who are you really? And our fundamental identity is not a socially, sexually constructed one. It is found in Christ. Colossians were hidden in Christ. So you get both self-control and self-expression that pair together. I think the risk is we only go self-control alone, no expression, because when we think self-expression, the self that we want to express is actually an unhelpfully sinful self sometimes. The Bible does talk about self-expression, but in the best of ways. That is, who are you in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is your true identity. Put on that. Live out that. That's being your true self. But you realise in Colossians 3, put to death your old self, put on Christ. 
There is a, there is a both and that goes together in that. Um, we define one another. See, if we fuse sexuality and singleness and marriage with identity, we end up defining one another by that. And we will never say it, but it becomes the thing that we always talk about with each other. It becomes the, when you're planning your future, I can't do anything, I have to put my life plans on hold until I, because that's the mark of having arrived of being my truest self. Um, you get it in church life where you feel treated differently based on your marital situation or not, because fundamentally we treat our identity as fused with our marital status. It's, it's our situation, it's not who we fundamentally are. I was reading... Um, uh, this book called The Chapo Collection about John Chapman, one of the uh, great uh, Sydney Anglican uh, single unmarried men uh, and, more importantly, a really good evangelist. Uh, and I want to read to you what he says at one part, which I found so helpful and makes you think about within their church at that time how they thought about how they treated one another in terms of identity. Um, one of the, this is what he writes. One of the things that has always been nice to me in this congregation as a single person is that I always get treated like a person. I don't know if you ever think about me as being single, but I never think about myself as being single, and I don't ever think of you as being married. Sorry, that could be a bit offensive, but that's what he said, right? So, I mean, it's just never occurred to me to categorise people like that. I just think about you as you, and that's how I want you to think about me as me. And, I, and don't think about me as me in transit to some other condition. That's the not-yet-married thing. I might be in transit, although I think I'm not, but there are some other people in this congregation who I think may be in transit, and if they are, think about them as they are right now. Someone created in the image of God and being recreated into the image of his son. And self-control, in many ways, is a way of becoming our true self, not suppressing our true self. Second countercultural um, contrast, context versus obedience. Paul stresses that our context, situation, marital status is of secondary importance than our obedience to God's commands wherever we might be. So notice, um, when he speaks about, um, in chapter 7, verse 17, what does he say? Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. In fact, he makes our situation of secondary importance. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Note this, verse 19, circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. But notice, he also broadens that out. He doesn't just talk about circumcision, uncircumcision. It's set within the context of a chapter where he's responding to particular um, misunderstandings about sexuality, marriage, and singleness. In one sense, ultimately, he's saying marriage does not matter and singleness does not matter. He expands the concept later to slavery and freedom. Were you called verse 21 while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as free man, a free man is Christ's slave. You notice what he's doing? He's saying that it doesn't matter whether you're married or unmarried, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free, though don't equate slavery and freedom with marriage or unmarriage in either direction. He's actually saying, more fundamentally, you do have another situation that counts far more. Right? Notice what he said. For he who is called by the Lord 
as a slave is the Lord's free man. So the slave has to remember that, no, I am, I am actually free in God. That There is a more fundamental identity that's going on here, more fundamental situation. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. There is a more fundamental situation. In one sense, collectively we are the bride of Christ one day consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and yet at the same time all of us stand before God and one day we'll be unmarried. So what, what does that look? We are both in one sense. This really grates against what we, when we talk about um, God's will when it comes to marriage. This is really uncomfortable for a lot of us because I think the way that we talk about God's, uh, God's will in relation to marriage is that God has someone specially appointed for me and it will be this person and they are short of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chosen one. Uh, and and we, 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 I hate to say it because my first observation that I'm not going to go into, but I'll just mention in passing was, it's very strange. You see how Paul talks about this chapter. He's quite cagey, almost coy. He doesn't want to come, he doesn't want to come down too hard on particular things. He often says, I'm offering an opinion, not the Lord, that raises other questions. But, but it, it, I think what it shows is when you come to wisdom, there are certain things that God, in one sense, does not care about as much as we might care about them. Now, that, that might, it sounds offensive and uncaring to say God doesn't care, but on one level, it's the same thing with our work. People go, should I take this job or that job? And I'm like, I just don't think God really cares. I think he's got bigger concerns than this job or that job. The bigger concern is, are you keeping God's commands wherever you are? What matters most is our, obedience, is our obedience to God. Whatever situation that we're in, keeping God's commands is what matters. Fidelity, faithfulness in marriage, and chastity in singleness. But so many of us, when you think about it, actually speak to one another as if our context, our situation, and our marital status count more than anything else. We are constantly, I mean constantly, on the lookout for a future boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. The most frustrating thing, we're constantly trying to set each other up and find a spouse for our friends. Plus, we think, oh, if only, if only you could get there. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's those two words, if only. If only I was married, then I could. If only I had a boyfriend and girlfriend, then life would be. And the sad thing about that is we keep changing our situation, do you realise? Thinking that, oh, if only, they're not the right person, maybe that person. Or maybe not this situation, maybe that situation. But we miss actually that which is most important, that is our obedience to God. The tragedy, of course, is, in some circumstances, we're willing to not keep God's commands in order to change our situation. So we start dating or marrying people who would be unpleasing to the Lord, a situation or relationship that would be unpleasing to the Lord, simply because we value the change of our circumstance more than actually what our God thinks. God calls us instead to focus on where we are today, of being, of being faithful where we are. Now, let me be clear, that doesn't mean that we can't search for a spouse or date or even be active in our search. Notice he does say, but if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. You've got the freedom to do that, right? And I think the, the mistake of 1 Corinthians 7 is to read it all as in one sense, command and law. That, that would be an unhelpful way to read this. There's a lot of wisdom in here. Exercise your judgment. You have the freedom to do it. But if you're constantly searching for a boyfriend or girlfriend but not being deep in the word, prayer and fellowship, there, there is a problem there. There is a problem there. Our context matters less than our obedience. Fourthly, I have two minutes per point. Singleness versus marriage. Though there is a more even direct and awkward comparison that Paul makes. He says, at least in some respects though, he does kind of want to commend singleness 
over marriage in some ways. And I want to emphasize in some ways, not in every way. Because the mistake with this would be to put the shoe on the other foot and just go, marriage is unimportant, singleness only matters. That is not the point. Notice he says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. There seems to be a present distress, something that's going on in that moment that shapes his preference. And he's saying that marriage would actually add to the present distress. Because of the present distress, verse 26, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. You see, his driving motivation seems to be here in the context to relieve the believer from worldly concerns so that he or she can devote themselves wholly to the things of the Lord. I want you to be without concerns. Verse 32. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the uh, Lord, so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Now, I want you to notice, he's not saying that singleness is necessarily easier or harder in that. He's making a comment that it may be more advantageous if one desires to live a life that is wholly devoted to the Lord, whatever that means. But I do think he's saying, he's not saying that the things of the world are necessarily bad. That would be the mistake, right? He's not saying that they're bad things, right? In many ways, it is right and proper that if you're married, that you give yourself to both your spouse and, and to the Lord, There are things that I don't personally know about, but if you ask a married couple, there are things in married life that are just, that they take up time. They're they're not, I wouldn't say distraction, but your devotion is divided, even your time is divided. Money, time, energy, kids, holidays, schooling, all those things. You have to walk and chew gum at the same time, but the unmarried person is freed in such a practical way that they can devote themselves to pleasing the Lord. You think about, um, now, that, that has its most immediate or obvious expression in gospel ministry. So you think about, uh, you know, there's, there's a list, right? The list, John Stott, Dick Lucas, Peter, Adam, Reese Bazan, John Chapman, all these guys. You can just kind of, you know, reel them off. But, and actually, single women comprise the greatest number of missionaries, I understand, in the world. So there you go, right? Um, but I wonder, and this is just a question rather than a statement, he uses the language of pleasing the Lord. He doesn't use the language of the work of the Lord. And so I just, it's more of a question, maybe it's my question to Danny. What does he mean when he says pleasing the Lord? He uses the language of pleasing the Lord in 1 Thessalonians to speak of sanctification. So it may not just be about, I want to go into full-time gospel ministry. If it's about sanctification, it's broader than that. But it is about a life wholly devoted to the Lord, however that looks. What is fascinating about this, if Paul says, neither one is more preferable than the other, though you do need to understand at a very practical level, if you want to live a life wholly devoted to the Lord, singleness does come with certain advantages, right? It is almost the inverse of how we see marriage and singleness, isn't it? Now, it could be due, we we have a strong, if almost exclusive preference for marriage over singleness. Now, that could be due to the joys that we rightly see in marriage, That's fine, that's that's good. But I wonder, and this is more of a question that I think, a reflection question for us. 
if singleness gives us a unique opportunity and advantage to be wholly devoted to the Lord, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, then I wonder, might it be the case that we devalue singleness and extol marriage so much because it's a question that we might not actually value a life that is wholly pleasing to the Lord. Now, I'm not, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that if you get married, that's because you're selfish, right? I'm not saying that. That would be, again, the inverse. But I do wonder if, if at its heart, he says, in marriage, you have to please the Lord and please your spouse. In singleness, you can wholly devote yourself to the Lord. I wonder if we, if we take a step back, do we actually approach the questions of marriage and singleness not with the question of how can I live a life that is most pleasing to the Lord, but I wonder whether we ask, how can I life, live a life that is most pleasing to me? Now, notice in the non-Christian world, that might be living a single life. Because they're not in one, they don't have, you don't have to exercise self-control as such. But if your fundamental question is, what will please me the most? It's a very different motivation from what Paul seems to be suggesting here. I love what John Chapman says here. He goes, the only time the Bible addresses itself as to who is superior between married and single is... Who serves the others most? That's an interesting thought. I don't think we think about that in that sense. We often talk about marriage as a gift, right? Uh, Or singleness as a gift. And that's a whole other question. We can have another session about it. But we go, oh, it's a gift. It's for me to enjoy. I love gifts. Thank you. And then we talk about singleness. This is, who wants this gift, right? It's a... You know, it's the Christmas socks. No, sorry, Joe, I love them. But, you know, it's the Christmas socks, right? No one wants them, right? But, but actually, you think about how Paul uses the language of gift in, in 1 Corinthians, and it's not actually for you. It's for us. That's a totally different way of seeing gift, isn't it? I've got marriage as gift. Lovely. Well, you know what? Good luck, rest of the world. I'm going to take my gifts with my spouse and, you know, enjoy that over here. And poor person, here's a gift as singleness. And it's like, oh, I have no one to enjoy this with, nor do I enjoy it. Right? Like... <laughs> Well, here's an idea. Actually, the gift isn't primarily for you. The gift is for all of us. There's, Danny did a PhD on the world versus the world, this world versus the world comes, so I won't go into that. Let me just end on this. I've I've blown 20 minutes, that's okay. I tried my best. You can only imagine what would happen otherwise. Um, Three comparisons. I've gone down from five to four to three. Um, Self-control versus self-expression. Context versus obedience. um, And singleness or marriage as such. And actually, I think on every count, even Christians, we kind of drink the Kool-Aid from the world and baptise it with Christian language. So we just it sounds godly, but it's actually really just worldly most of the time. Uh, let, me, let me end on this, and then you can go get a copy for... I'm going to cut that down as well, 15 minutes. Um, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 7 to correct a misunderstanding about singleness, marriage, and sexuality. And he writes to a mixed audience of singles and marriages. He doesn't go, okay, single people, gather over here. I'm only going to talk to you about this. Marriages go away, right? And then he doesn't go, oh, married people, now your turn. You know, don't come to the singleness thing, come to the marriage thing, right? And he doesn't go, uh, women, gather over here. I'm only going to talk to you right now and no men. And men only gather here. I'm only going to talk to women, only you. He, he writes to all of us. We need to hear this for one another. And this means that how we live it out individually actually often turns on how we live it out together. We here are the plausibility structure for how we do this. If you go out into the world, that's what you're going to be hearing most of the time, right? Self-expression, context, and whatever makes you happy, whatever pleases you, however understood. Now, if we do that here, there is no context where we are actually hearing or experiencing 
What is true biblical community under God? Every day we face the false narratives of the world around us and the only way we can successfully fight against those perspectives is by the church being the one place which reflects God's countercultural priorities. In many ways, you should expect the world to tell us untruths. But really, of all places, we should expect the church to be the one place that tells us the truth. The tragedy for us, and Danny wouldn't say this while she's a polite guest, uh, but can I say, it is pointless for us to only preach about this unless we experience it in our relationships together. It would be a tragedy to just do this and they go, oh, lovely, and then people just go hang out with the people who are exactly like that. I mean, it's just, a, it's just ungodly. We need to find ways to actually be together because we're better together. And I'll tell you two reasons why it matters. Firstly, I think this more than anything else is one of the top reasons why Christians walk away from church and walk away from the Lord. We get this wrong. You know it, don't you? That moment where you're trying to help a flaky Christian friend who's starting to wobble and then you realise they've entered a relationship with a non-Christian and you're like, oh, and you kind of don't begrudge them for it on one level. It's the sort of thing we do a terrible job of it anyway. But you know that when you're there, it's just so much harder. It is, I actually think, one of our attitude, how we as a church do marriage, singleness, dating, all that stuff, will end up being one of the great defining witnesses of the church versus the world and whether actually we serve one another who are struggling with the question of do I walk away from it all? And it may be a bit gratuitous, but I think, uh, I was wrestling with other things. I'll say it, I'll say it. For those of you who know, you know, right? So two years ago when I went through my thing, asked someone else around here, um, I, I didn't find the world that hard. Like I was expecting that. Like that, that's obvious. You can't even see it coming. I found church the hardest. My biggest question was, what will people at church say or think? And I say it's patchy in terms of research. Like, I'll just be honest about it. I think that's probably the truth case with anyone, right? Like, like it's what you get back from the church is often well-intentioned, but more shaped by the world. And so it's like, oh, of all places. I'm not saying that to guilt anyone. I'm, I'm just saying that we, we will only help each other through this stuff if we reflect this well. And we will shoot each other in the foot and hurt one another if we preach it from the front, but don't express it together in our life as a church. We must do that. We must not have gospel preaching or gospel proclamation without gospel culture. 